rallying Congress to vote on the infrastructure bill, and the spending bill may be the most head-turning headlines these days, but for tax experts, the behind-the-scenes negotiations reveal perhaps the most interesting part of the story. The House Ways and Means Committee's reconciliation bill, which calls for $3.5 trillion in spending and an increase in taxes for wealthy individuals and corporations, has at least one contentious sticking point, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act's guilty regime. What do Democrats want to change? What do Republicans want to preserve? Hello, everyone. I'm Matthew DeMello, your host of The Fiona Show Tax Provision. In a September 27th article in MNE Tax titled U.S. Democrats Hope of Overhauling TCJA's Foreign Taxes Stemmed by Global Pressure, author Alex M. Parker of the Capitol Council in Washington, D.C., talks about the spending bill's tax proposals and roadblocks and what they reveal about the U.S. as a global player. He's here today along with Howard Telson, Senior Manager of Tax Provision at Cross Border Solutions, and I'm going to hand things off to Howard for this conversation. Howard, you have the floor. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it, and welcome, Alex. It's great to have you here. For those of you who don't know, Alex Parker is actually a return guest the Fiona Show, so Alex, really welcome back. As a writer for Law 360, where he was prior to joining Capital Council, Alex joined us in a few discussions on the Fiona Show Transfer Pricing, our sister podcast. So before we kind of dive into the article, can you just tell us a little bit about Capital Council and what you do as a principal there in your new role? Capital Council is a public policy firm in D.C. They have a specialty in taxation. And I just joined a couple of months ago, so I'm still kind of figuring out my role there. But I'm doing a lot of you know research and keeping an eye on what's going on regarding taxation and especially international taxation, which is sort of my specialty from about 10 years of writing about it at Law360 and Bloomberg BNA. We had a podcast just recently talking about the Build Back Better plan and, and kind of where we're at in the legislative process of tax reform. And, you know, obviously everything's really in flux, but one of the biggest issues that's currently kind of being considered kind of currently on the table for corporate tax reform is revitalizing the international tax structure a bit. Obviously, the international tax structure changed significantly with the 2017 tax reform. This is an area where folks are really interested, so it's great to have your expertise today. And I just want to kind of set the scene when it comes to international tax. When we think about international tax, there's kind of two different philosophies countries could take in terms of how they tax from an international perspective. So a country could kind of take a territorial approach or they could take a worldwide tax approach. Could you just provide some context and explain for the listeners, what is a territorial system versus a worldwide system and how, how do these two concepts differ? Yeah, that, that really is kind of the, the big picture debate that is in tax policy is worldwide versus territorial. So worldwide means that, and we're just talking about corporate taxation now, although the same principles apply for individual. That's a whole different discussion that's actually pretty interesting. But in corporate taxation, a worldwide system means the tax authority tries to tax all the income that a corporation earns globally, just your total income. That might seem pretty intuitive to people that like, well, a U.S. company ought to pay U.S. taxes on all the, the income it earns. The territorial system says, okay, we really want to focus on the income that is earned in our jurisdiction. And we don't care so much about what is earned in other countries. 
And normally that's accomplished by giving an exemption to foreign earnings of U.S. companies. I think there's a couple important things to understand about this. The first is that no system is totally one or the other. Almost every system in the world is kind of more on a a scale. The U.S., for instance, until the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was ostensibly a worldwide system. But the catch was that U.S. companies could defer earnings that were earned abroad, basically indefinitely. And that created a system which was really, in practice, closer to a territorial system. And that's kind of what the TCGA did was just say, hey, let's, let's just acknowledge that we're a territorial system and make that official. I think the other important thing to understand is the tax system needs like a foundation. It needs like a bedrock. And when it's a worldwide system, that foundation is residency. Where is a company headquartered? And then if you are a U.S. company, that means we tax you a lot. We tax you based on everything. A territorial system, it looks more on where is the income earned? Where is that economic activity happening? How do we define it? There are drawbacks and pluses to to both of those philosophies. The issue with residency is that you have inversions, you have corporate takeovers. You, if you put a lot of pressure on that principle, it, it'll respond to that pressure. And when you think about it in this era of giant global companies, you know, where you happen to have been founded and where you happen to have your headquarters can kind of feel like an arbitrary concept. Although, you know, a company like Apple is probably never going to stop being a U.S. company. In fact, Tim Cook actually said that in a congressional testimony once. He said, we will never leave the U.S. On the other hand, uh, tracking the location of income can be very tricky. You could argue that it's more substantive because it really does relate to where a company makes its money. But Again, we live in an online world where a lot of stuff happens in the digital sphere. You might have disagreements about whether something is based on a sale or based on the research. And so those conversations get very complex. I think that the last point you made was, was fantastic because, you know, when folks used to kind of debate these two different taxation systems, it was kind of more in the brick and mortar context. And it was a little bit easier to wrap your head around. But now in the, in the digital world, Everything, everything is digital. Every company has a digital presence. Uh, things are on the cloud. It becomes a lot more complicated, a little bit more dicey. And then, you know, your point on the U.S. tax system, when we're talking pre-2017 tax reform, where the U.S. was considered on that worldwide tax basis, but you know, like you said, it was sort of a pseudo-worldwide tax basis where you could defer tax on income that was kind of permanently reinvested abroad. And, you know, maybe the incentives were a little skewed then to kind of keep income shifted abroad. And now we shifted to more of this pseudo territorial system where now we're taxed more on a U.S. basis, but we do have this kind of mechanism to tax some foreign earnings as well, which I think we could touch upon now. And and what I'm referring to here is guilty or global intangible low tax income. So this claws in some foreign earnings and, and takes our territorial tax system to really a pseudo territorial tax system. But basically, you know, this was kind of the intent of the law was to kind of help companies prevent them from kind of shifting profits outside the U.S. and call back some of those earnings into the U.S. But could you just give us a brief overview of guilty and maybe touch upon why it's become such a hot button issue in the U.S. tax system in general and why it's really a focus every time there's changes to the U.S. tax system? Yeah, well, you got right at the issue that guilty is meant to 
capture income that has been shifted out of the U.S. It is a worldwide tax. It's one of the few remaining worldwide taxes, not the only one, but in the system after the TCGA. And it says we look at income that is earned by a company that's abroad, and then it's taxed at actually half of the U.S. rate, so 10.5. The way they do it is it wants to get it intangible income. That's what the I in guilty is, the the first I. (laughs) And that's income that is earned through patents, through IP, what they call assets and tangibles. They only exist legally. They're not things you can see. They're not, like you said, brick and mortar. And they tend to be involved in tax shifting structures because they are relatively easy to move jurisdiction to jurisdiction. When you hear about like Facebook and Apple and all the money they've accumulated offshore, that was always through earnings with intangibles. You know, and there were rules before to try and block that were some gaps in the rules. Guilty gets at that, but what they basically said is it's too hard to really come up with like a good definition of intangible and that captures everything. It's a very squishy kind of concept. So instead, we're going to look at what's tangible, which is pretty simple to say like, okay, these are tangible assets. It's depreciable, tangible assets that are held offshore. And an unusually high profit return on those assets, just kind of arbitrarily, they picked 10%. So anything over 10%, because that's a lot for a tangible asset to to be making, we're just going to say that's intangible. And that's kind of how guilty works. Like I said, it's taxed at half of the rate. And the idea is that if you can't achieve a very low tax rate, a tax haven of below 10.5%, it's probably not worth it to do all of the work that goes into creating a elaborate tax structure if you're not going to achieve that like really low rate. And that that way, the income will stay where it's earned. A lot of it will stay in the U.S. and you won't have that leakage. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai tpu. There is a foreign tax credit element unguilty as well. Some folks, when in 2017, when tax reform was passed, people saw guilty and there was a lot of headlines that, okay, if you're not in low tax jurisdiction, if you're above a certain rate, and I think it was like 13%, then basically a lot of companies thought, okay, we, we won't be subject to guilty because we're not in these low tax jurisdictions. However, then once folks actually started applying the rules and kind of going through the rules, they realized, well, if I start allocating expenses, to my foreign tax credit on guilty, then I actually am going to be subject to guilty, even if I'm not necessarily in these low tax jurisdictions.
Yeah, I, I've heard people say that like every every letter in the acronym of guilty is is misleading in some way. <laughs> Although, I mean, not not global and not income, but the <laughs> low tax and the intangible, because it, it's really all a formula. So you get foreign tax credits and there's a 20% haircut. So what I mean is the amount you can claim is reduced by 20%. In theory, that covers most of the income you earn if a jurisdiction is above 13.125%. But like you said, in practice, there are some restrictions, limitations on how much you can claim in the foreign tax credits, including you know interest expense, research and development. Again, because of this issue that so much in what we do is global and it's hard to, to pin down which jurisdiction, that's created some situations where guilty has ended up companies can have a pretty huge guilty liability, even when they're not operating with low effective tax rates. I mean, that issue we could do a whole podcast on. (laughs) I think kind of the broader point is that because they decide to go this formulaic route, which has a lot of pluses, and and that's why the OECD right now is considering a similar concept, the downside is that you end up casting a pretty wide net and you end up taxing a lot of stuff that is not exactly what you were going for. And that's been the big complaint about guilty that you hear often is that it's just this small penalty that only affects egregious tax practices, but it, it hasn't totally worked out that way in practice. Right. Yeah. I think that's, that's completely spot on. We'll touch on OECD in a moment, how they're looking at this concept. But before we do, I just want to circle back to if you buy or qualified business asset investment for a moment. You know, you mentioned kind of the 10% break you get on the value of depreciable tangible assets and how a roundabout approach would basically trying to get to how do we establish the tangible assets as opposed to the intangible so we could essentially put a tax on the intangible. So we'll give taxpayers a routine return on the tangible and then tax any excess. But just in terms of policy, I think you you speak about it a bit in in your article, and I know other folks have touched on that policy as well. But why are folks looking at that as potentially a negative? Why are folks saying that QBI may actually incentivize behavior that folks in the U.S. may actually not like? Right. You have to sort of picture the way it works that when I talk about like a 10% return, that means the first... 10% 10% of the value of however much tangible asset that you have abroad, that just gets taken out. That's exempted from taxation. And then everything above that is taxed. So the more tangible assets you have offshore, the bigger that exemption is going to be provided. And this is a, a really important caveat that the profit remains the same. If the more tangible assets you have offshore, the profit increases, then it might stay the same or you might actually pay more. But because of that basic principle, Democrats, and I, I remember this watching the floor debates about the TCGA, even before it was passed, they started pointing out like, hey, you're actually giving a incentive for companies to create more offshore tangible assets. And that became kind of a democratic talking point pretty quickly. Since it's been passed, it's something that, that critics of the law have returned to not just Democrats, I show you some papers that have been written about it that talk about whether there is this incentive. And I remember Chris Van Hollen, at the time he was a representative from Maryland, he's actually my representative. He was saying, this must be a mistake. Why would anyone want to 
incentive to have more offshore. So it obviously seemed very counterintuitive to people, and they call it a loophole. And and you can find references to that uh, President Biden's speeches where he says there's a loophole that allows companies to pay less in tax the more they have offshore. I really don't view it that way as a loophole. I think it's it's actually pretty fundamental to the philosophy. We can go back to at the beginning, having a territorial system that only wants to tax what's inside your jurisdiction and then kind of trusts that when other countries either they have similar tax rates or if they don't, that that's an honest competition between countries to see what the right mix of taxes versus things you might spend taxes on like infrastructure to see which works the best for them. It kind of leads us into the next piece of the discussion, but just to sum that up at a high level, basically the higher your QBI or the higher your tangible asset amount is that's abroad, essentially the lower your guilty income and the lower your tax, you know, which is why a lot of this has become a bit of a contentious issue. But to your point, it does kind of form the basis of this territorial philosophy. And along those lines, guilty as a whole has seemed to become a bit of a popular concept in the sense that the OECD, when they're looking at a more global tax reform, you know, this BEPS 2.0, and when they're thinking about Pillar 1 and really focused on Pillar 2, but, you know, they're kind of thinking of adopting a similar principle, the OECD is, to guilty, where they would potentially institute a minimum tax as a means to kind of tax the digital economy. However, some points of contention when it comes to this Pillar 2 concept and adopting a, a quote-unquote top-up tax similar to guilty for countries sort of around the world, one of the contention points is in terms of the carve-outs. So things like a QBI. Could you speak a little bit to that point, whether it's Pillar 2 in general, or just in terms of the negotiations, why those type of carve-outs, like a QBI type carve-out, has become a bit contentious between various countries and how they're looking at this top-up tax? Yeah, it's kind of funny when in the U.S. political discussion, you hear all these bad things about guilty, but then all of a sudden in Europe, it seems like everyone likes this idea. You had these OCD discussions going on that were trying to look at how do we deal with digital taxation, what they call the taxation in the digitalization of the economy. They always want to make that point because I think you mentioned this before, everything is the digital economy now. And so it was kind of stuck. And there was a huge disagreement between the countries about how to best do that. And then the TCGA came along and somehow that kind of broke things loose. And the main reason was that countries saw the guilty concept and there was a lot of support for that. And it kind of became a grand bargain that countries which only really wanted a destination-based new digital tax, so like tax digital income where the consumer is, they could live with the idea of also having a tax which is more worldwide based and then vice versa. That like Germany is a country that's very export based. They weren't huge fans of the idea of a new destination based tax, but they like the idea of something that's worldwide based tax. And so those two things went together, but still a long way towards finding an agreement on this. And actually, we're taping this on Wednesday. The OECD may announce something in a few days, but it's not clear. We're supposedly very close to a final agreement, but we're talking about 140 countries, not just the OECD countries, but the countries that are participating in the negotiation. 
what they call the inclusive framework, a much larger coalition, and they're trying to get everybody on board, all of those countries. So finding a consensus on that was really hard. One issue that kept coming up was countries were saying, we want to be able to provide incentives. We have various incentives for our domestic companies. We don't want to have to stop doing that because we now have this new minimum rate of 15%. And so it eventually became clear that if this deal was going to happen, it had to have what they called a substance-based carve-out. And the substance-based carve-out was basically the same concept as QBI, that it's a percentage of tangible assets. What's actually interesting is they took its tangible assets, but they added payroll. So it's even more directly connected now to how many workers you have. So you could argue it's even stronger the incentive to move workers around. Now, of course, the dynamic is different if every single country is doing this, because then it's not like it's just one country that's going to lose a bunch of business. But you still then have this issue. Janet Yellen and President Biden talked a lot about ending the race to the bottom in taxes, that you have this tax competition that is just so strong that countries are under so much pressure to undercut each other. This global minimum tax having a floor is going to help with that issue and maybe give developing countries some room to breathe and be able to have a low rate that they can build up their infrastructure with, but not lose out on investments. But because of this carve out, you still do kind of have a race to the bottom as long as it's connected to real activities and not just to profits that are just written on paper. It's an interesting point. You know, I think when folks are thinking about these negotiations and kind of BEPS 2.0, it is really all about leveling the, the playing field, right. putting all countries on an equal footing. But to your point, you know, there's there definitely could still be some incentive for lower tax jurisdictions when you look at kind of these carve-outs. But I guess we'll have to see how it plays out and definitely seems like it's a step in the right direction. Just shifting gears a little bit from a worldwide perspective back to kind of honing in on the U.S., we mentioned at the beginning of the episode the current tax negotiations going on in the House and the House Ways and Means Committee passed this Build Back Better plan, which we went into detail on a, on a previous podcast episode, so we won't get into all the nuts and bolts of it. But one area I did want to focus on is their treatment of guilty and, and QBI. With regard to QBI specifically, this House plan, they, they essentially dropped it from the 10% rate currently to 5%, so you a 5% exemption on companies' foreign depreciable property. This was a bit different than the Biden plan, which actually completely you know, got rid of QBI. And you mentioned you know, Biden's comments previously on how it was incentive to move assets abroad. So that makes sense from this perspective, but it seems to have sprouted back up a bit here, just lowering from 10% to 5%. It seems like this is kind of more of a general consensus among Democrats. In your article, you mentioned that the change in the QBI isn't necessarily like a minor tweak. I guess what, what makes you say that when, when some folks see this 10% to 5%, they may not think much about it. But what did you see when you saw that provision in this bill? Well, what I meant was that the issue of QBI is important and that it may have been more directed to general readers who might not have heard of QBI. But the fact that they decided to reduce it by 5% instead of eliminating it was significant. If they had eliminated guilty, really, the nature of it changes. 5% means they are acknowledging 
the issue, the offshoring issue, but they weren't quite ready to make such a drastic change to guilty. And the reasons, which I'm sure you'll want to get into, a lot of it has to do with that interplay of what the OECD is doing and not wanting to be too out of step with the rest of the world. Yeah, no, it, it definitely makes sense. And, you know, I think a lot of folks have been interested on, on what's going to happen with guilty if this pillar two consensus comes to fruition and what the interplay is between guilty and pillar two, you know, that is a point that's going to need to be worked out negotiations. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, Big Four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp just focusing on this built back better plan in general outside of this reduction to cubi what other areas that are looking at potential changes on the guilty front we could talk about the base of guilty in general and on how that's computed currently you're able to offset losses against income Across jurisdictions, and it seems there may be some changes on that front. I focused on the QBI criticism, but Democrats have been equally critical of the fact that guilty allows all the income to be aggregated. What they wanted to do was to have it look at every jurisdiction when you decide whether or not it's below that 13.125%. Because if you aggregate, you might have a mix of low and high tax jurisdictions. And you might just barely get in under the overall rate, but you're still utilizing havens. So the OECD looked at the same issue and they came out in favor of a country by country system. And there's some interesting arguments about that either way. A country by country system, it is a big administrative and compliance issue. All of a sudden, your effective tax rate in every single jurisdiction matters. So that's going to put a lot of strain on transfer pricing for tax administrations, all of a sudden they've got a lot to look at. But the interesting kind of flip side is that one of the other reasons that people in the business world have been critical about Guilty is that it kind of was designed with this assumption that companies are always going to be profitable. It's something you see throughout the TCGA, and it's kind of interesting the political reasons that happened. They were really desperate for revenue, and you know, unprofitable companies don't have as much pull on the hill as profitable companies do when it comes to how deciding those issues and pushing back on those issues. And then, of course, the, the pandemic happened and suddenly every company was dealing with calculating their losses. When you have excess foreign tax credits, you pay more in taxes than you had in profit. 
under the guilty system, you just lose them. You cannot carry them forward, which is the way that foreign tax credits have traditionally worked. You also cannot carry forward losses. If you have one unprofitable year and you don't pay taxes that year, but you also, under a traditional system, would have had a credit for future years, you don't get that under guilty either. And there was kind of a philosophy there that like, okay, you you have a lot of flexibility in the jurisdiction, so we're not going to have as much flexibility in terms of what they call temporal differences, timing differences. So the House bill actually flips that and it says, okay, we're going to be stricter on the jurisdiction, have country by country, but we finally are going to allow you to carry some foreign tax credits forward and have some losses, which is also in keeping with the OECD plan. So some people were surprised that the House plan was as taxpayer favorable as it was, because these are things that companies had been asking for to say, look, there's a lot of companies that are just in cyclical businesses and they have one unprofitable year or they have one really profitable year, but then they might have another. And if you're not averaging those out, you're not really getting at the right amount of tax payments for them. So this is almost sort of a bargain with taxpayers that like on the one hand, you're, you're going to have this new stricter country by country system, but on the other hand, we're giving you some flexibility. And it's actually interesting. It, it may work out to be that some companies will pay less under the new system. Other companies will pay more. Yeah, no, for sure. We were talking about this on the last podcast episode, but like you said, I mean, there's some bad here, maybe going to country by country and not being able to mix and match losses could hurt some countries, but having those carry forwards, like you said, over time could help being able to carry forward foreign tax credits and losses. And then the guilty rate is generally going up here with the corporate tax rate jump. Forgot to mention that, but that the guilty rate, they increase it to about 16%, which seems like they're kind of intentionally overshooting the 15% a little bit so they can then bring it down to the 15, but very close to the 15% that the OECD is. Yeah, no, 100%. So yeah, I mean, you have this this potential country by country approach, an increase in rate. So those both sound pretty bad, right? And you know, you think uh, a reduced Q buy, so maybe all these companies are gonna be paying more guilty, but then like you said, you carry forward these smart tax credits, these losses, there's also a provision where companies could potentially apportion less expenses in their foreign tax credit basket. So only apportion the Section 250 deduction as opposed to things like interest, R&D, and stewardship. So that could help. So you do have some good and some bad. We are talking a little bit on the last episode how this obviously could hurt some companies, but to your point, it could definitely also help some companies. I think each company out there is going to have to kind of model out these differences and see in total, is this actually potentially even a good thing? on the guilty front, even though the house seems to think it's a revenue raiser will add more of a tax burden to more companies than less. But I think it really depends on individual facts. Appreciate that context. Shifting over to higher level questions, bigger picture, would you say in general, QBI is contributing to foreign investment? As in when President Biden talks about it as a loophole, and other politicians talk about this measure, they're, they're concerned about the fact, as you mentioned before, that companies are potentially shifting assets and investment abroad. Have you seen this in terms of looking at the data? Have you seen this actually come to fruition these last few years, or is there a, a different story to tell here? The story to tell is really that at this point, nobody knows for sure. There is some data out there, but it's pretty inconclusive at this point. And it's actually surprising that 
there hasn't been more analytical work done on this issue. And then you also have the fact that it's only been three years since the law was passed. 2018 was a transition year. And uh, 2020 (laughs) was a very unusual year. So between those two issues, you don't have a ton of data to base conclusions on. And then also on the fact that when I, just anecdotally, when I talk to people, they say, look, there are so many decisions that go in, so many factors that go into the decision on whether or not to make a location decision. In theory, on the margin, this might tip it one way, but all these other factors that are going to play about the workforce and the costs and whatever trade wars might be going on. And then even factoring in all that, it just companies, there's quite a lag in terms of when to build a new factory, when to do something. They, they don't just make decisions like this on a instant. Democrats have pointed to a few things. Back in 2018, the plant in Lordstown, Ohio, GM plant closed, and they had been opening up some plants in other, I think it was Mexico. That was a big deal to me because I actually used to be a newspaper reporter in Ohio, not Lordstown, but nearby very much. It's an auto area where everybody's life revolves around these plants. So that's really a big deal when a plant like that closes. But again, you have to look at GM's long-term plans, reasons that they are maybe shifting what kind of cars they make. And it just, it is a very difficult kind of issue to tease out of the data. Yeah, no, 100%. You know, I think when folks think about tax and, and how tax drives decisions, you know, sometimes tax could be a primary factor in the, in the decision, but usually there's a business reason for most, you know, large company decisions that comes first. And then, like you said, if all else is equal and the only you know, differentiating factor between maybe two choices of where to go in a country is tax, then maybe factor them. But typically the business decision really has to drive the boat here. A part that often people forget is that the other country is going to have taxes too. So it's not like the U.S. is just in a world where there are no other taxes. It's kind of interesting because the rhetoric they used to pitch the TCGA talked about how there was just going to be this flood of jobs as soon as they passed it. And Donald Trump, kind of in his usual style, was he, he made a lot of big statements about the effect of the, the law, sort of implying that businesses are very responsive to taxes. But then the design of the law actually assumes the opposite. Guilty assumes that your tangible assets are less likely to shift than your intangible. So you have kind of that dynamic there of sort of different ways of looking at the tax system. Yeah, completely. And I I think the other element that companies have become wise to is as the political landscape is shifting in Washington, they need to be careful. If they're making decisions on passage of a bill that could change in four years, or less, they need to be really careful on how those decisions are made. Because if they made a decision based on that 2017 tax act, some of those provisions are changing here that could significantly impact them. And that's why it really is key to balance the business decision with its tax impacts and how they can change in the future. Just anecdotally, I hear that very often. Hmm. Like maybe we do have money in a tax haven and it's not profitable anymore, but we don't want to move it because we really don't know what right. the situation is going to be in five years, 10 years, whatever. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, along those lines, we think about looking forward to how the tax system is potentially changing. And the Pillar 1 and Pillar 2, the BEPS 2.0 initiative, 
making the taxation system as a whole on a worldwide basis more connected. How do you think that looks kind of in the coming years? Where do you see the worldwide tax system going? Do you see it coming together? How do you see this kind of shaking out at a high level? That's a good question. It's uh, it's really hard to know because <laughs> th- there's so much momentum with this uh, OECD project, but on the other hand, there's so many potential roadblocks. But I think it's undeniable the system is becoming more connected. You have more cooperation now than was even conceivable 10 years ago, 15 years ago. I think kind of the point I made in the article, despite all that, you still have this desire to have a carve out for substance, desire to be able to compete a little bit based on substantive investments. That part's not going away. The kind of larger point that isn't so connected with guilty and what we've been talking about, but it's just something that's, I think, important. At Law360, we did an article with Chip Harder, who was an official at Treasury involved in the OECD discussions. And he said, you know, when you sit in these rooms with so many other world countries and they all want a bigger piece of the pie, they all think that they deserve more based on their workforce and based on their consumers, that there is going to be more what they call source-based taxation Source versus residence is kind of analogous to worldwide versus territorial, but there's a lot of differences. (laughs) So it gets confusing. But basically the principle that the system is going to become less dependent on worldwide taxation and probably a lot more focus on where our workers, where our sales, where are the real value drivers of economic creation yeah, I think that definitely makes sense. You know, where where is the economic engine of a company and how does that dictate taxation as opposed to kind of a more antiquated approach, you know, that used to be kind of a really core concept when it was more of a brick and mortar. The U.S. was always really lucky because we <laughs> we have everything. We have a lot of headquarters. We have a lot of the R&D stuff, like all those campuses out in Silicon Valley where they're inventing these great new formulas. Mm -hmm. And we have almost one of the biggest consumer bases in the world. So we're lucky enough that we work out every way, but it still affects us a lot, which of those things you want to rely on. And you have these emerging economies where more and more people are buying things and the internet allows them to be more involved in the global economy than they were before. And so that is going to shift things in terms of where the major tax bases are. Makes perfect sense. Now, just to kind of wrap things up, we talked a lot about how things have changed and then how they're they're kind of potentially changing going forward with another batch of U.S. tax reform and potentially some global tax reform as well. Is there anything you would recommend that companies should be doing now? Obviously, it's impossible to know exactly how everything is going to shake out. And, And like we were just kind of alluding to before, things could definitely be changing. You know, in a few years, things could definitely be changing again, particularly from a U.S. perspective. But who knows, you know, the global scale, there could be changes as well. So what would you kind of recommend companies be doing at this point in time to kind of get ahead of some of this? You know, I'm not sure what to say other than, and I guess this is a little obvious, but just stay very focused on what these changes are going to be. That the world is in such flux that it may be hard to base a conclusion and decide on a plan of action based on these changes. But definitely, companies need to be aware of the nuances in these debates 
And also, I think it's always better if you're a company to make sure the taxes are not siphoned off into one little corner, which used to be the way it was, and that these issues are considered kind of in a holistic way throughout the company. Yeah, no, I think that's so important. And, you know, I've worked with some companies who are really good with that and, you know, taxes involved in, in key decisions and they have a seat at the table uh, and they work with finance and accounting and, and operations. And then I've worked with companies that are very siloed. And a lot of times, you know, the tax firm will get blindsided and they'll say, you know, we didn't advise on this. This doesn't make any sense. Uh, so I think that point is super important, especially as things are so fluid and changing it's as important as ever for the tax department to kind of have a seat at the table on business decisions and to always be kind of kept abreast of what's going on in the company. That's a great point. I think that's a great place to kind of close it down for today. Alex, thank you so much for being on. Really appreciate it. I thought it was a great discussion and hopefully we'll have you on again at some point in the future. And just a quick update, if you haven't heard the news on Friday, October 8th, it finally happened. 136 countries agreed to the OECD's groundbreaking global tax reform proposals Alex was actually talking about a minute ago. Of course, the goal of the two-pillar plan is to ensure that all companies, including digital companies, pay their fair shares of tax. And given our digital economy, those fair shares would be based on where companies do business as opposed to where they're physically located. Pillar one rewrites the rules for allocating profits above a certain percentage of the world's largest companies. And pillar two is the stomping grounds for a 15% global minimum tax. While the agreement may be the same for all countries, each one would be impacted uniquely. Naturally, negotiations didn't come easily. In fact, many countries hemmed and hawed over the deal throughout the process, and it wasn't clear if certain jurisdictions would be agreeable right down to the wire. Ireland wanted a, quote, maximum 15 percent, unquote, global minimum tax, not the at least 15 percent minimum that was originally touted. Hungary wanted more substance-based carve-outs. China wanted to limit the global minimum tax for companies that are starting to do cross-border business. The OECD met those terms, and in the end, only Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Nigeria, and Kenya refused to sign on. While the agreement is a big step forward, there is still a long road ahead. Individual countries will have to adopt the proposal into local legislation, and countries with digital services taxes, a real thorn for the United States, are supposed to repeal them. The proposals are slated to take effect in 2023. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd.
We want to thank Alex and Howard for a wonderful conversation and everyone at home for joining us. If you love today's podcast, you are going to love the other podcasts in Cross-Border Solutions Tax Podcast Suite. That's the Fiona Show R&D Tax Credit and the Fiona Show Transfer Pricing. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's the Fiona Show Tax Provision, and we'll keep you up to date on the latest in tax provision. My name is Matthew DeMello, and they let me host, edit, and engineer this podcast. Marilyn Mitchum-Strom is our executive producer. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. We'll catch you next time.